This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Carla McLaren. Carla is an award-winning author and an empath whose approach to working with emotions has helped countless numbers of people heal from trauma. She is the author of a new book, The Language of Emotions, What Your Feelings Are Trying to Tell You, as well as a Sounds True audio learning series on the language of emotions about how to unlock and learn from the wisdom held within each of our emotions. Carla and I spoke about the idea of what it means to be an empath, how to talk to children about their emotions, viewing emotions in terms other than positive versus negative, as well as learning how to listen to our emotions. Here's my conversation with Carla McLaren. You're someone that I think of as an original, someone whose work comes from your own life, your own original sources of material. And in fact, the word empath, what it means for someone to be an empath, I I heard that word first uh, from you. So where did you get this idea that you were an empath and what does it mean to be an empath? Um, We were trying to figure out where the word came from and I think it came from a Star Trek episode (laughs) where a young woman didn't speak but she only uh, read emotions from people and they Uh called her an empath. So that's where that's where most people know it from. (laughs) And for me, an empath is someone who is aware that they read emotions. We all read emotions. We can't not because we read um, nuance and we read undercurrent and we read between the lines. Uh, But for me, that has always been the loudest thing in a conversation. So where I would sit with someone and they would hear the words, I would say, but look how she was behaving. Look how she feels about it. Look at this. Look at that. And I realized fairly early in life that what what I was seeing was not what everybody else was seeing. It wasn't normal. And it took me until I was in my 20s or 30s to finally kind of grab onto that title and say, I'm an empath. Some people would also say I'm a very, a highly sensitive person. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say it wasn't normal, what do you mean? Most people, you said everybody's tuning into emotions, but most people aren't aware of it. So what was the thing that felt abnormal to you? I guess how clear it was to me, how people people felt when they were speaking. I was just watching um, a musical group, and I won't say who they are, but there are four of them. And they sing and they go all around the country to sing. And someone had sent me um, a YouTube video of them. So I went and watched. And then after the singing, there were um, interviews with these four singers. And the way they were sitting, the way they were speaking, they weren't looking at one another. They were all sitting like this in their chairs as the other one was talking. And they weren't leaning and they weren't looking at each other and they weren't joking. And I wrote back and I said... They hate each other. They hate each other so much. Mm. And other people, after they heard me 
you know, after I, I sent it out to a bunch of people that I know, and after they looked at it and they went, oh my gosh, they do. But it wasn't the first thing that they saw. They were listening to the words and what the people were saying, but I was watching the relationships or the lack of relationships that were going on in that group. It was fascinating. And it's sort of how I felt my whole life is I would see what was going on, the relationships, and people would say, well, they didn't say anything. I saw that they were screaming it from their body language. Mm -hmm. And then this empathic information that you're receiving, is it how you're seeing pictures, words, I mean, how, how, what, how do you receive the information? It's, it's nonverbal, so it's been a, a great deal of time in my life I've spent uh, figuring out how to articulate it verbally. But it's, it's nuance, it's gesture, it's breathing. I'm reading body language, basically. But more than that, also, mm, I'm reading almost sociologically what, what the hierarchy is in the relationships. I, I can sometimes tell how well people know each other or don't. Um, and it can be very uncomfortable because a lot of times people want you to see um, what I call the on-stage behavior. They mm -hmm. want you to see the man who is not behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to see all the preparation that it took to get you where you are so you're looking quite adult and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I spend sitting in crowds or in groups of people not saying something about what I see. Mm -hmm. Now you said you're looking at the sociology, the hierarchy in a mm -hmm. situation. What do you mean? What I mean is, is that sometimes I'll go into a group, or a lot of times I'll go into a group and I will see the systems that they've formed together. Who is, who thinks they're in charge and who really is? how the relationships work and how they don't, who's forming little cliques and who's left out, who doesn't realize they're left out of the clique, that sort of thing. It's almost like um, I see everything as kind of the high school cafeteria where it's more clear when people are teens that they're yeah. doing their cliques and they're, you know, we're the burnouts and we're the jocks and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I still see that when I go in. Okay. Now it's one thing to know what another person is feeling. What I found is that most people don't know what they're feeling, let alone what other people in the room are feeling. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's so hard for people to simply know how, what they're feeling? I think mostly because we're not taught. Because we don't... I was, um, I was looking at... When I, when, I, when I look at the emotions, I try to make it simpler for people to understand them. And so I say that they are the water element of the psyche, the body's the earth... Uh, the spirit or the spiritual aspect or the visionary aspect is fire and the intellect is air. But I, what I noticed, and it's changing, is people say we have uh, body, mind, and spirit, and they think that's a complete thing. And I said, well, where's the emotions? Or they'll say, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, <laughs> where's the woman? Um, it seems like there's the fluid emotional aspect of life is left out of most of our deliberations. And one of the things I'm noticing is that when we're in school, when we're four and five years old and we come into school, we're supposed to already know how to do emotions and how to do social behavior, even though we're four and five years old. So that if we act out an emotion that's not right, like anger, 
we're not going to be dealing with it in the classroom. We're going to be sent to the principal's office and we'll be sent away from the, the learning environment because we'll be told, you know, in that shaming way that that emotion is not acceptable, but nobody actually says it. You know, there's not a, there's not a book on it when you're little. Mm -hmm. You learn to read and write and do math, and, but you don't learn what your emotions are or why they're there. So how would you talk to a five or six-year-old about their emotions? I might, if I've just met them or, yeah. or if I know them. Or if, you're, you're an educator and you're working yeah. in the classroom and you've got all these kids. And yeah. Well, I know that anger is about boundaries. So that if you're feeling angry about something, it's because you've lost your sense of self around it or because it is so important to you that whatever happens with it is going to kind of wound you. So if a little child is having a heck of a time with his or her anger, I would just look at the social structure around them because most emotions are social. Um, some you have just by yourself, but we're social beings. So what is happening to that child that's, that's breaking his boundaries or her boundaries? Is there too much noise in the room? Is this the first time the child has ever been away from their home and unable to just do as he or she pleases. You know, is this the first time the child has asked to ask to go to the bathroom? That can kind of, it can break the spirit a little bit to have to go from, you know, maybe being the king of the house to one of 30 kids. And some kids will just sort of act out. It's like, it's like their little spirits are trying to, trying to make a place for themselves in the world, mm -hmm. trying to set boundaries. And so as a teacher, I might say, I see that you're uncomfortable right now. So what would make you feel more comfortable or how do you need to work this out so that you feel welcome here? Instead of saying, young man, we do not do that in here. Now you go to the principal mm -hmm. and he won't learn. What do we not do? Do we not feel uncomfortable? Do we not act bratty? Okay, I know we don't act bratty, but is it, what is it that we don't do in here? So nobody's telling the child that. Nobody's telling him what his emotions are trying to do for him. Mm -hmm. Now, a couple things I want to backtrack. The first thing is you said most emotions are social. I, I don't think most people would think that. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm feeling sad about something. This is personal. Mm -hmm. This is my sadness. Or, mm -hmm. You know, what do you mean? How is my sadness social? Sadness is a very internal emotion. But in general, our emotions are an aspect of our relationships. If you want to be in a relationship, you've got to have an emotional vocabulary. You've got to know what your emotions are or you don't belong in a relationship. I think um, I was just looking at jealousy and envy and they're incredibly sociological emotions. People hate jealousy and envy. But what they do, jealousy um, is a little bit of anger and a little bit of fear. And it sets our boundaries and it intuitively looks at the most important relationship in our lives. And what it's doing is trying to protect us and that relationship that's become a part of us and making sure that what is ours remains ours. And so sometimes you'll be really jealous and go, oh, this is awful. Um, I shouldn't do this. This is a bad emotion. But basically what your jealousy is saying is something's going on in that relationship and you're not feeling comfortable. Either it's you that's not feeling comfortable or it's your partner is not being entirely honest. But 
the jealousy is a connection between you and the partner. And envy, too. Envy is something that arises to make sure that you are connected to resources and to recognition. And if you're not, that is it's socially dangerous for you to not be connected to those things. It's socially dangerous for you to be in a relationship where you're being betrayed. Um, that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So these two emotions come up to protect you socially in the world. And I think that's really fascinating that, that, that those two emotions specifically are so hated. Yeah. Because, especially here in America, where we are all about the relationships and we are all about the money and the recognition. Right? So the emotions that, that help us maintain those in an honorable way, we hate them. It's very backward. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's this idea that, you know, there are positive emotions and there are negative emotions. So emotions like jealousy and envy and anger, those are negative emotions, and I don't want to feel them. Mm -hmm. And it seems in, in what you're offering here that you're saying something very, very different from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty common idea, Carla, that they're like, these are negative emotions and we don't want to feel negative emotions. Yeah, here I'm standing all alone going, <laughs> I have something to say here. What about this? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's been really important for me to understand and articulate is that all emotions have a normal state that is present and available at all times of every day. And I call it the flowing state. So flowing fear is my intuition and my instincts. And I just have it all the time. I don't have to feel fearful. It's just there. If a person I know does not have good instincts and doesn't have good intuitions, I know there's something wrong in their fear in that whole area. Um, flowing anger is my ability to set boundaries. If it's flowing, you will know that I'm a separate person from you. You'll know that I'm honorable and that you can trust me and, and that I'm not going to tell your secrets or whatever. You'll just sort of know. If I don't have flowing anger, if I'm not working, my boundaries are all over the place. I'm going to be tripping over you. I'm going to be um, uh, spilling your secrets. I'm not going to be a trustworthy individual because I don't have proper boundaries. My anger isn't properly maintained. Flowing shame. With flowing shame that is just there and available to you, you know, you reach your hand out for the cookie and you go, I don't need that. That's shame at work. Now, with each of these emotions, with all emotions, then there's a mood state. So let's say I've got good boundaries, I'm doing pretty well, and then you come up and you say something to break my boundaries. So you threaten me. My anger may kind of go, hmm, Tammy's a problem right now. So my anger may need to come up to a mood state and go, you said what? You know what I mean? Hello? So I could set boundaries with you humorously, or I could actually show you that I'm angry or whatever. I have choices there. And then, since we're staying in the area of anger, then there's like this ramped up state where I could start really getting up in your face. You are not going to have this scarf, because the last time I lent you something, you got stuff all over it. Screw you. You know, I could really, I could try to hurt you. When my ramped up anger comes out, I don't have good boundaries anymore because I'm taking my anger and I'm going to come out and hurt you with it. So there's like these, these articulations of each emotion. And so a lot of times people will be very grounded, um, very able to let things go, very able to like 
be ethical about what they buy, that's sadness working very well in their lives. And it's also envy working very well in their lives. When you don't have good control or good, not control, good connection with your sadness, you can't let anything go. Because I don't want to release anything, because mm -hmm. sadness lets you release. Mm -hmm. When you don't have good connection with your envy, you're going to be grabbing everything you can, because um, what will happen? Well, you don't know because you're not really thinking very clearly. So what we tend to know as emotions are the mood states or the, the part where I'm going to go out and take you out with it. So when people say I hate emotions, I'm all, I do too. Because I hate what people do with them. And, you know, when someone comes out with their anger and just beats the crap out of somebody with it, I go, you just, you just wasted a perfectly good emotion. Each of the emotions has a very specific thing, a thing that it does in the psyche. And if you don't know that, then you'll just kind of look at the mood states and go, well, emotions are just they're idiotic. So what you're saying, see if I have this correctly, is that th there aren't some emotions that are positive and some emotions that are negative, which, as I said, a common belief. It's not that anger and jealousy are... It's that the positive or healthy condition is a flow state where we're getting information from the emotions that's coming to us as moods, but we're not going further into acting them out negatively? Is that, is that what mm -hmm. you're saying? Well, it's almost like there's three states. Okay. There's the flowing state where I don't even have any, any consciousness of my anger except that I set good boundaries, and that's it. I don't feel anger. There's nothing there that, that feels like anger except I just could set good boundaries. Then there's the mood state where I realize, okay, I'm pissed right now. Yeah. And then I see, well, what do I want to do with that? And then there's the state, like with rage, where um, I've just lost my boundaries and I'm, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, but so each of them, you can like come back to what would that emotion be for? What is that, ang what is that energy about? What, what would you do with it? Why do you have that? It's almost like I'm doing evolutionary biology on the emotions. Why in the world would you have that? Why would you have a suicidal urge? That's a stupid idea. And then coming back and seeing what it's about. So for me, this term empath is I would actually go into the emotions and talk to them and say, what, what are you about? Why would I have jealousy? Or why would I, why would I need panic? Panic's stupid. It could hurt you. Why would you need it? So in a way, I'm having um, the foundation of it is that there's something positive here. There's something necessary here or we wouldn't have evolved it. And is the idea that when it arises out of the flow world into the mood world, so mm -hmm. now I'm having this mood, yeah. um, to use the example you just gave, let's pick panic. I'm starting yeah. to feel kind of panicky. Yeah. That that's the time when I need to listen in yeah. some way, that there's some message I'm getting. Yeah. And in terms of like the language of emotions, I also found for each of the emotions, there's a question you can ask. So you can get into this practice, this meditative practice with the emotion and work as their partner instead of being their puppet. So when I'm um, raging at you, I'm just a puppet. I'm a tool of the rage. But when I can ask my anger a question and it is, um, uh, what needs to be protected? It's about boundaries. What has been broken down and what needs to be protected? Then your anger can turn away from, you know, Tammy, who wants my scarf, and go, 
what does need to be protected? Oh, okay. And so I can say, okay, my relationship with Tammy needs to be protected. And I definitely want to keep my scarf. Um, so I have those options. Yeah. Right? And so I can say, well, what about if I bought you a scarf that looks just like this one? Is that going to be yeah, okay? Yeah, that would do it. Okay. Yeah, okay. So that way I, my anger protects everything that's important to me. But if I just let my anger go off on a, on a, on a whirlwind tour of crazy, um, my scarf will become more important than you. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably hear that if I yeah. say, you know, screw you. So you came up with each one of these questions through your own introspection? Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. tell me some of the other questions? So with fear, when you're activated, the question is what action should be taken? Because you're going to have to take an action with fear. Your fear tells you when something needs, something is changing and you need to do something about it. Um, what action should be taken is like you get into yourself and you say, okay, fear, you are the expert in this. I'm just a person. You know what you're doing. So what do I do? Right. Now let's just pause for one second. I want to hear some of the more questions. But mm-hmm. I think often what happens when somebody feels something like fear mm-hmm. is they go, this is very uncomfortable. I don't want to feel afraid. Yeah. Not what action should I take, but this just basically is terrible and I yeah. don't want to feel afraid. Yeah. And they go do something else like, you know, turn the TV on or mm-hmm. change the subject or, you know, something. And sometimes, you know, that's the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, just get away from it. Especially if you've got like a, I call them feedback loops. Yeah. Sometimes you've got an emotion that just keeps coming up and you don't know what to do with it. But see, the emotion still needs to be there because it came there for a reason. So you can be, oh, I don't, I don't want to deal with that fear right now. I just, I can't deal with it. So you go do something else. But then the next time you come to the fear, it might even be coming out stronger. Okay. So let's say I say what action needs to be taken. And the answer I get is, I don't know. I don't know. So you can just sit with it. Say, well, what am I afraid of? But it's like, sometimes when you've been working with your emotions in, in ways that are not conscious, your emotions won't really know what to say to you because they haven't met you before. So it's a process of you learning what it is, what the emotion is, and your emotions learning that you're someone that can be trusted. Um, because trusted, I almost trusted see them to do what? Trusted, trusted. To, to not um, throw them or crush them down back into the psyche because they're, they're ugly or they're, you know, it's kind of like the shadow from the Jungian perspective, where whatever you repress, it'll come back and get you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that with emotions. Okay, so so let's take another example. Uh, You said something about suicidal urges. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, most people, first of all, wouldn't think of a suicidal urge as an emotion. Yeah. What I put it is that anger is the beginning of setting boundaries and being your honorable self in the world and make that suicide urges is the end when it's just the world has become untenable. You can't set boundaries in it. You can't find your place in it. Um, everything's out of control and there is just no purpose for your life on this okay. planet. So it's, it's, a continu- it's part of the anger continuum. It feels to me like it's a part of the anger continuum. Okay. Um, of course, it's also got all kinds of other stuff in it, too. All emotions have other emotions in them, or they work with other emotions. But for me, with the suicide urge, that's the one that I thought, this is a silly um, urge for a living organism to have. Yeah. Because most of your body 
exists to keep itself alive. It's what it does. And you can starve a body. You can, you know, not give it water. It will stay alive. It does not want to die. So I'm thinking, why would you have this? And for me, the answer was that sometimes you get to a place in your life for whatever reason that the difference between who you are or who you want to be and who you have become is extreme. It's not redeemable. It's not fixable in this world. And for me, when a suicide urge comes up, what I ask it is, what needs to be killed? And the answer can never be you, Carla, because that's not going to happen. But what needs to be killed? And usually the suicide urge, when you say that to it, you don't say to the suicide urge, can I sing you a little song about bunnies? Because mm-hmm. that's not what it came here for. Yeah, It's not about bunnies. But you can say, what needs to be killed? And what I've heard the suicide urge say, because I did suffer from major depression and suicide urges since I was about 11. What I heard suicide say, you know, with this incredible ferocity was this pain, these circumstances, this behavior, you know, like that. And then with the skills, with the empathic skills that I created, I can actually do that in a way that the emotions understand. And that's by by utilizing nuance and imagery and and flow and and having a place where the emotions can actually be themselves. So can you go into this a little bit, these empathic skills? I mean, you just named them, but I don't really have a feeling for how they work. The first three are informed by the healthy states of emotion. So the first one is grounding, which is where you just breathe in and, and release into the ground. That's sadness. So you just get in touch with the, the healthy flowing state of sadness. Okay, so I didn't, I didn't quite follow that. So I understand the idea of mm-hmm. grounding mm-hmm. as a positive mm-hmm. thing to do, especially if I'm feeling emotionally, wow. Yeah. But how does that relate to sadness? Because sadness is about letting things go and relaxing okay. into your body. Okay. And kind of rejuvenating yourself by releasing tension. Okay. And the next one is sometimes when you're in sadness or when you're really grounded, you're not really aware of the world around you. It's a very internal emotion. You're just kind of here. The next one is to sit forward and to kind of listen for the quietest sound in the room. And there's a whole practice for this. But it brings a focus to you, a calm, aware focus, so that you're aware not just about what's going on inside you, but also what's going on around you. And that one is fear. That's the healthy flowing state of fear. It just makes you aware of your, of your world. Okay, because fear, the idea is what action needs to be taken. Yeah. So I want to be sort of I want to be available, available to make okay. an action. That makes sense. And the action could be just stand there. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And So sort of like all senses awake. Yeah. Okay. Just everybody's awake. But I also have the, because of this, the grounding, I also have the capacity to get and move stuff through me. Okay. So if I'm getting all tense, what I notice is that I start paying attention to the tension. So my focus goes inside again and then, oh, I missed something. Or what'd right. you say? You know, because I'm, I'm not focused. Okay. Uh, so with the grounding, I can be here and paying attention to you and to what's going on in the room. And I can say, oh, that hurts. Breathe into it, let it go, or check into it, or see, you know, what's going on here. But not have to leave you to do so. 
Right, okay. Um, then the third skill is to create boundaries which I once understood as an aura. And it's, um, it's an area around your body um, at arm's length distance. So above you and behind you. And it's like you're standing, you're, you're here and you're standing in between, um, in the middle of an eggshell. So you're a yoke. It's to create a sense of boundaries around yourself so that you have a sense that I am a, I am a sacred, um, inviolate, separate being but I'm going to be available to you. But, but I don't want to be running out and figuring out your emotions for you or, or throwing my emotions at you or anything. And I also want to have the private space I need so when an emotion comes up that isn't socially acceptable, like jealousy, I can work with it. I don't have to go running off into the other room. Mm -hmm. And this boundary ability is um, anger. Now, you, once, you said you once understood it as an aura. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there anything wrong with thinking of it as your aura? I think, for me anyway, and it could be different for others, is that for me, if it was an aura, then it was from another world. It wasn't this world. And what I understand it now as is um, that your brain and your neural system create a personal space for you and in a healthy person, the personal space is the same exact size as what aura readers see as a healthy aura. It's an arm's length away from you at all points. And what this is being understood as is the proprioceptive system inside your, your brain. So you have interoception, which is your awareness of your whole body. And then you have proprioception, which makes me aware of where your leg is, where mine is, what's behind me. Um, and you can get a really good sense of your proprioceptors when you drive a car that isn't yours. And so you're driving and uh, uh, where's the, yeah. you know, you, you become, and then it takes a while and then eventually you map the car. So your proprioceptors map everything around you. And a part of that is your personal space. So when I was working with the with the aura concept, I knew that people needed to have that personal space. But now that I understand it as the proprioceptors, it actually makes it a little easier for me to work with because I can say, okay, my brain can map this now. Okay. Rather than, than there's some, you know, there's some magical um, otherworldly thing happening to my aura that I don't really understand. You know, when people come yeah. by and say, oh, your aura is purple or green or blue. and But you could say, how intact is your proprioceptive yeah. function? Yeah. How healthy is your aura? How intact yeah. and how aware are you? Yeah, and if your brain begins to understand what you're using it for, just like when you learn to use an avatar in a video game, your brain understands that that's you. So it begins to understand, your, your fingers begin to understand how to move it in a way that your brain goes, okay, that's happening to me. Right. So if your brain and your body begin to understand, this is how I want my boundaries to be, this is, this is the kind of room I want around myself, then sometimes your boundary will actually start to change to tell you something in that empathic language of, of, of images and nuance and feelings. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, there are people I know who come and they like to you know, talk to you two, two inches away, yeah. you know, whether or not they have bad breath. It's kind of like, how dare you stand so close yeah. to me? Like or when that. you're in an elevator, you know, yeah. you know where your personal space is. So it exists. And I think with the aura, it made it difficult for me because it, 
it didn't exist. You know, I had to make, um, I had to tell a lot of stories about it or go to other uh, other cultures to talk about it. Uh -huh. And this is something we all have. So it kind of, it makes it a lot quicker to get into rather than right. having to go through the whole metaphysical, you know, canon. Okay, but in this, yeah. in the, in this third skill, the point is that I become sort of uh, settled in my proprioceptive sense in my personal space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, let's go on to so the... So that I know yeah. where I am. The fourth skill <laughs> um, is called conscious complaining. So what I've done is made complaining into a practice, and by saying conscious complaining, you know how sometimes people will come up to you and they just go, and you're like, I have a phone call to make. Yeah. But they're like, you cannot believe what Dave just did. And I want to tell you this because it happened two weeks ago. And you can't stop them because they're in an important process. Yeah. But you didn't want to be in that process. So with conscious complaining, I'll sometimes complain to a person. I'll say, Tammy, I'm riled up. I need to complain, but I don't want you to go to any kind of resolution. I just want you to let me complain until I'm done. Is this a practice that you can do for three hours if you want? Yeah, but you'll be surprised that you can't do it for three hours. Huh. Because if you really do it, you'll be done in like a couple of minutes. I have a shrine for the complaining part of me. And I go and I say, okay, I'm complaining now. And I go, first of all, well, I swear a lot, yeah. so I won't swear. Yeah. But um, first of all, this bleep, 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 and this bleep thing here, and this thing here. And I say all the things that you can't say socially to people, you know, unless you have a talk show or something. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's just a wonderful thing because, because first of all, it's kind of against the rules. Yeah. Complaining is not okay. So you create this little shrine and you complain like there's no tomorrow. And then eventually it gets funny. Sort of like, you know, when you cry and if you've cried long enough, you start laughing. Yeah. It's, it's like that. Eventually it gets, it, it, you get out of it. And so the reason that instead of it taking me uh, three hours, it's only going to take three minutes is because I'm being conscious? Is that the, yeah. That's the difference? And you know what you're doing. So where you could be sitting with a friend and complaining, yeah. but they're going to do or say something wrong. They're going to try to stop you from being in pain. Or, or they're going to say, well, have you considered this? Right. And they stop the flow you know, of the beautiful horridness that is trying to come out of you. And also... When you're complaining to someone else who's alive, you might, you know, you're always going to be aware of hurting them. Yeah. Or pulling them down into the doldrums with you. Yeah. So there's always going to be this holding back thing you do. You know, you're not going to say, I just like to kill that guy. And, and then what emotion does conscious complaining relate to? I mean, I guess I the think first it three skills. To all of them. The first three yeah, skills. Yeah, the first three skills are very specific. Yeah. But conscious complaining is just for all of them. Okay. And I use it sometimes for really stuck emotions like depression, or I said, or or anxiety. Anxiety is a tremendously stuck emotion because it's got all that activation of fear. But anxiety is a fear of the future, and you can't do anything about that. Or it's a fear of the unknown, and if it's unknown, what are you going to do? So anxiety just tends to to spin. What question do I ask when I feel anxious? Um, I ask what action should be taken. Same but as a lot of times with yeah. anxiety, it'll be like, I don't know. So I say, well, go and complain. Oh, interesting. And so if you can complain about things, it's hard to be anxious about them because complaining is more, it's an action, but it's also more empowering. Because when you're complaining, you're kind of angry. 
you know, you're kind of bratty. Yeah. You kind of had it. You're kind of done with it. And so it helps you to hear it all. And sometimes when you're complaining, you will surprise the heck out of yourself at what you say. Um, it's almost like that left-handed writing people used to do. And they're like, what in the world is coming out of my brain? Hmm. There's things that you would... I'm right-handed, so left-handed would be yeah. my opposite. Yeah. Yeah. But um, sometimes you'll hear yourself say something that you didn't realize because you're being socially polite, because complaining's not okay, you know, all that stuff. Okay, and then it's the amazing. fifth empathic skill? The fifth is called rejuvenating yourself. And I don't say this in the practice, but, but it's joy. Okay. It's joy. So you basically, you know, get yourself grounded and get yourself focused and fill your entire boundary with a sense that you get in your favorite nature scene at the best time of year. When you're alone or with people, it doesn't matter. But just, you know, sometimes when, for me, it's Kauai. So when I finally get to the end of the road and there's Ka Beach and I know I can get into the water, my body goes, oh. And it took a long time to get there. I had to have a plane and do this and pack. And now I'm at Ka. And so it's surrounding, using the fact that your emotions understand images they understand nuance. They understand undercurrent. So you imagine, if you can't visualize, you just feel how you feel when you're in K.A. So you bring that in. And then just breathe it into your body. And just rejuvenate yourself with that sense. So it's imaginal. It's meditative. But it's also emotional. Okay, now we started talking about these five empathic skills in the context of someone who might have a suicidal urge. Mm -hmm. And you were like, well, there are these empathic skills that can be used. Mm -hmm. So how would this person, let's just say, you know, they're not obviously serious about killing themselves. Yeah. But they have some kind of thought, maybe something terrible happened, or I just want to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And they, they, it's clear that this feeling is coming up, or this sense is coming up. What, what do they do? I forgot one of the skills. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> one of the skills is called burning contracts. Okay. Because the skill of grounding has sadness and fear in it, grounding and focusing. So there's a skill called burning contracts, and it relates directly to suicide okay. urges, okay? So in burning contracts, you're inside your boundary and all that kind of stuff, and you actually unroll a parchment, and you express onto the parchment the things that you're feeling or the behaviors you're having or the attitudes that you're stuck in or anything like that. And you just let it come out with whatever emotion wants to come out. And it's a way to, to create and support emotional flow. And after that's done, you roll up the contract. And if you want to, you tie it. It's kind of a way of telling the emotions, I saw what that was. I understand what it is. Now I'm getting rid of it because I don't want to do it anymore. And then you just throw it out of your boundary and poof, let it go. Something where you tell your emotions, I'm aware that there's a problem and that you can help me with it. And I just did that. So with suicidal urges, you would say, what needs to be killed? And it will start listing things. Because you don't get to a suicidal urge, you know, yeah. if you just forgot to get toilet paper that day. Yeah, yeah. It's usually about 8, 10, 25 things. Yeah. And so uh, sometimes it'll say, your whole persona. Yeah. Uh, don't kill yourself. So let's say my suicidal urge didn't like my persona, the 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 way I was being in the world because yeah. it was fakey. Um, I would unroll it. I would put my whole persona on there, and I would just start feeling things about it and having my suicide urge help me 
figure out what is so wrong with that. I probably know. I probably know. A lot of times in a suicide urge, it's just, um, it's just intense. It's like it's there, it's gone. Because suicide doesn't want to think about it or mourn it or grieve yeah. it. Or, it's like, that's gone. I've had it. And so you take it, you roll it up, you throw it out, <laughs> and you kill it. And this seems silly. It seems like play acting or something. But the psyche loves images. And the empathic part of you, the watery part of you, loves music, which has no words. It loves art. It loves painting. It loves time with animals. It loves all kinds of things that have nothing to do with words or reality. Mm-hmm. And so as, as we work with the empathic parts of ourselves, we have to realize you've got to get to where it is and make room for it. But I found that it's, it's just amazing because when you're in therapy with a good therapist, you're going to get to that same place. They're going to have you look at your emotions and say, what about your persona? Yeah. And you'll say, well, it's killing me. And so, you know, for people who can't afford therapy, <laughs> we can do um, burning contracts. Yeah. Well, you know, I notice I feel so uh, relieved, I guess, in a way, and free to be able to even talk about something like suicidal urges, meaning it's a topic that you most you can't talk to people about that kind yeah. of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. public conversation. Yeah. And so I want to keep going in this direction, if that's yeah. okay, Carla. Because it's one of the things I really appreciate about your work is that you embrace and aren't afraid and don't shy away from a lot of experiences, emotional experiences that a lot of people do in their work. You know, it's all happy slappy. So uh, let's take depression, something you said you were personally familiar with. What is the message that's coming with depression? What question do I ask? How do I work with it? For I call depression ingenious stagnation because what I notice with depression is like energy and impetus and hope they kind of vacate the psyche. They're gone. You can't find them. And with depression, you just, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And the questions I ask for depression is, um, why is my energy gone? And why was it sent away? Because what I understand in depression is, and the picture that I got is that it is the psyche I got a picture of um, um, World War II, of London, and of people sending their children to the countryside. And what I got from depression was that something in the psyche was making a decision to send the children of the soul away from the war. And what I notice in depression is if we look at the, the four-element model, usually the emotions, something's going on there. There are emotions that can't be felt or that are spinning and it's not working. Usually the mind isn't very clear. A depression can really, you know, drop you out of intellectual functioning. Usually your body feels pretty crappy. Um, you just don't have the energy to go. And your spirit is kind of grounded. You don't have that soaring, you know, yeah. what, if, what if. Yeah. It's more like you've, you've just given up. Yeah. And, and yet you're not in a suicide urge. Yeah. So what's going on? Now, of course, you can be in, in a chemical depression, but it still means that something's going wrong and that if you're in a chemical depression, you shouldn't be moving forward and, you know, buying a house and, and, and getting a new job. It's time for you to stop. So that's why I call it ingenious stagnation, because uh, you don't want to go forward when you're in that much imbalance and turmoil. 
So when I turn to the depression and ask, you know, why is my energy gone? It'll tell me. You, you know, this is going on. We haven't felt sadness in 42.5 months. You know, that sort of thing. And it, there's, there's definitely something going on. So antidepressants can totally help because a depression can, it can knock you out. It can take you out. But even when you're on antidepressants and you're feeling well, you still, in therapy, need to go back and see what it was that got you there. How did that happen? And it could be you need to be on antidepressants because, because you, the chemicals in your brain are just not going to be okay. But, but there was something going on. So depression is like um, it's a stop sign. Yeah, don't go any further because it's not going to work. I didn't really understand the World War II imagery mm -hmm. in association with depression. Can you help me there? Remember that London was being bombed, and the adults stayed to take care of the houses. And also, I think there were hospitals going on at the time. But they sent the children away to, to the country, and the country was not being bombed at the time. Um, and a lot of children who grew up in that time, they remember being sent away. They didn't want to go. The children didn't want to go. They wanted to stay with their parents, even if it meant they were going to deal with bombs. And so that's what, what it felt like to me is some part of me was making a terrible decision in the face of war to send away my energy, to send away my hope, to mm -hmm. send away everything, because it wasn't time for me to move forward. There's bombs falling. Uh-huh. So that's uh -huh, that's okay. what the imagery me what meant for me. Yeah. So in the whole development of this work, you you discovered that you were an empath, had empathic capacities, and then you started in your own sort of personal laboratory working with each one of the emotions. I mean, it's when you when you talk about the emotions, you talk about them almost as sort of beings that Yeah, like enter. they're people. Yeah, you do yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just curious how that process, the process of developing this work, the language of emotions, has, has been for you. It's been difficult, and I've been able to actually have it be a practice in my life, um, something that I do, because basically I'm a weirdo. Basically, oh, right, join the crowd, man. Thank you. Basically, I'm the one sitting in the room seeing stuff that nobody wants to have seen. But, you know, writing a book, I become sort of an expert or something at it. And people come to me Ex for expert it. Expert weirdo. That's, expert weirdo. That's what we do here. <laughs> and um, it's been very, very difficult because for me, I was, a, I was a survivor of childhood trauma. So I dealt with a lot of crazy emotions and crazy situations growing up. So for me, at first, it was a, just a way to save my life. But then I noticed that I could help other people, too. And especially in the metaphysical world that I grew up in, um, being able to sense auras or proprioceptive territory, being able to sense emotions in people made me look like a psychic. So I was welcomed into that community. But I began to realize I'm not a psychic. I don't see the future. I'm reading people. I'm reading relationships. I'm reading social structure. I'm not... You know, like psychics can say, oh, there's an earthquake coming, or or they have actually pictures of things. I, I don't have that. I have a sense of things. And so that's why I began to understand I was an empath and that my my place in the world wasn't being, you know, some um, some cut-rate uh, psychic. It's like, well, I can't tell you the future, but I'll tell you how you feel. But instead to focus on what I could do, which was so unusual. 
So even in the in the New Age subculture, which was a place for a lot of weird and wonderful people, I was a weirdo even there. So I realized I could either be a weirdo and um, just kind of <laughs> be homeless or something, or I could actually go into this and find out what it is that I have that is so unusual. Thank goodness I was able to, because mm -hmm. this is really, the emotions are just really these amazing, amazing things. Do you ever now feel emotions that overwhelm you or that you think, God, I just don't know if I can deal with this? Not as much as I used to, um, because I do work with them all the time. Um, and it's almost like they're muscles that you get good at. But I was just dealing with a big family issue. Um, my mother died, and our family was very uh, estranged. And taking care of my mother was almost an act of sedition in my family. So people in my family love me, but there's also a tremendous amount of the, you know, family stuff. It's nonsense. So I was sitting at my computer and I was writing and all of a sudden an email came up because I can see the emails on the little side. And it was from my sister, who's been very estranged, talking specifically about the trouble, but in a very intense way, a very intense and angry way. And I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden, I kind of left my body, and this huge rush of heat came up. And I was like, oh, I don't want to look at that. Um, and I sat there, and I went, what's that heat for? Oh, it's shame. I feel ashamed. I feel angry. You know, so I'm sitting there going, so I can set boundaries around this and go read that email. So I did, and I was able to sit back and go, this is her experience. This isn't my mother. This isn't my experience of my mother. You, don't, you know what I mean? It wasn't like I made her into a non-person, yeah. but I didn't take it personally because I was still in mourning you know, for my mom, and I didn't need to hear stuff like that. But it was just fascinating that this thing came up, and I was going to the place I did when I was younger, just like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And instead, I was able to actually go in and then write back right away and welcome her because she sent it out to everybody in the family and nobody else wrote back anything. So I said, hey, I know that was hard to do because, I mean, I know what it's like to say something really emotional and then just have it drop and then have people kind of be weirded out by you for quite a long time and you feel really alone. So it was really amazing to have this emotion come up and teach me how to deal with a sister that I've had for 48 years. Um, it was amazing. The book, The Language of Emotions, you originally published under the title Emotional Genius. And, you know, my response to that title was, you know, I, I want to become like an emotional beginner or something. I'm an emotional <laughs> reptile or something. I'd be very happy to be an emotional beginner. The whole idea, could I ever become an emotional genius? I don't think so. I mean, I just want to be in the game. And uh, even as I'm talking to you today, you know, uh, I've now known you for a while, and I've grown a lot, I must say, and I don't feel as afraid of, of the emotions. I, I feel like I am an emotional beginner, not an emotional reptile any longer. But I, I guess my question is, can people, just everyday people who are afraid of their emotions, which is probably where most people are, actually develop these skills and become anything like what you described as emotional geniuses? Is there hope out there for people? I mean, most people are afraid of their emotions, Carla. They're not even in the game. I think for me, this, this chance I've had and that you've given me to come back 
and to revisit it later in my life and to simplify it and to and to understand it more i didn't realize when i wrote emotional genius that grounding was sadness and fear i knew that auras were anger but i'm learning more about it and to be able to have people do just a tiny little thing so sit forward and listen to the quietest sound in the room that's fear to have people understand oh my word i i'm good at this to make it as simple as possible to get the the auras and the chakras out of there so that it's accessible to people and and to say these are your emotions you have them you already work with them all the time you're already an empath you know i write in the end of the book that with science there's always questions but basically modern humans appeared 195,000 years ago and there's a lot of questions about it but what they're thinking is that language language appeared between 40 and 50,000 years ago so does that mean that modern humans were dimwits for 145,000 years it doesn't because we were communicating with gesture with nuance with pointing with art with music with comedy with physical comedy with touch we were empaths for 145,000 years before this all language nonsense came along we are empaths is something that we own and for me especially in the territory of fear a lot of times when i'm afraid i'll just drop down and ask my fear what do i do and it gives me information that i would never have gotten just you know for my 40 some odd years on the planet because fear comes from that 195,000 years and so does our empathy we just haven't been trained in it and i'm saying here's a little here's a little um training from the world of empathy and please come join me cuz i'm lonely over here in the corner <laughs> so you're saying that because this is in our genetics that it's possible for anyone regardless of their current relationship with their emotional life that's what i'm saying that's my hope thank you carla joining us today on insights at the edge the author of a new book from sounds true the language of emotions many voices one journey soundstrue.com